Here we go. Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, we've actually I mean, been doing this more than that. You know, five hundred oh. up, up in the up in the attic. Coming next Sunday, Lord. Yeah, really. And with us, we have coming back is the great Kevin Nicholson. Say hello, Kevin. Hello, Kevin. <laughs> you fit right in. Hi guys, how's it? <laughs> Hi guys, how's it going? Good. All right. 1984 was a pivotal, was a big year. I mean, there's a lot of hits that came out this year that became beloved 80s franchise. Even one became a franchise with only like one or two films in it. And uh, it was a pivotal year in film censorship, too, wasn't it, Carl? In the there's, there's a lot to that, absolutely. We'll get to that uh, during the podcast. I don't want to give it away yet. Yeah. But, yes. And let's see. Uh, we'll talk about stuff that not on the list. Uh, best foreign language film. How the hell did a passage to India win best foreign language film when that mother was in English? <laughs> it's uh, James Ivory, okay? And James Ivory being an English producer, and it was classy. One. You know that's the way it is. Well, I think the and it wasn't going to win best name, picture. So I think the name David Lean actually, uh, uh, you know, actually carries some weight uh, as well with uh, you know with that. So you know, I, I think that kind of the reputation of the people involved plays a part in what sways Oscar and what swayed the voters and uh, uh, and and so forth. Uh, to be honest, for me, uh, it, it was um, 
it was well mounted, but rather, uh, but rather dull uh, in its uh, right. in its presentation. Yeah, it's that very was always the problem her. I had with Merchant Ivory films that they were well mounted, gorgeous, well acted, but they were drier than the desert after you've eaten a mouthful of salt. <laughs> Exactly, and once you're getting past looking at uh, Freddie Young's uh, cinematography, uh, you know, which I'm not sure if he did uh, pass to Indy. I think he did, but uh, when you get past the cinematography, it's lush to look at, and everything, you know, just just looks great. But I go back to you, you know, when someone asks me about favorite David Lean, you know, films. I go back to, to to Dr. Zhivago, and I go back to Ryan's daughter, and uh, and, and Lawrence of Arabia, and so forth. It's just, yeah, yeah. It, it, these were works that actually not just looked great, but they moved and they entertained as yeah. well as uh, uh, as well as anything else. So, Passage to India is a is a lovely postcard, a travel log, as it were, but uh, as dull as dishwater. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the best original song was at the Oscars, I Just Called to Say I Love You. In the year they had, well, Romancing the Stone, which I just played, Ghostbusters, yeah. Uh, yeah. the entire Streets of Fire soundtrack. Remember Dreamscape? Yeah, well, Remember that would be a score. I'm talking song. Uh, let's see. Uh, okay. Yeah, Purple Rain soundtrack so much great music that we all still listen uh-huh. to nowadays hell how popular still, is the yeah. streets of fire soundtrack guys oh it's incredibly uh, popular yeah yeah <laughs> yeah seriously i don't know how yeah, many albums is that sold but that sold a shitload of vinyl trust me yeah. i used to collect vinyl and i, I think at one though. point Sell it, selling it too. I had like thirty copies of that thing. Yeah. <laughs> and the best original score was Maurice Jarre, Passage to India. And guess what? Because his uh, Warner Brothers are fucking idiots, and this composer's uh, people who are supposed to submit his score are fucking idiots. Ennio Ennio Morricone's very beautiful, one of his best, and he considers it his best, Once Upon a Time in America was not even nominated for an Oscar. Which is a crime in itself, to be honest honest with you. One of many uh, cinematic uh, award crimes that Oscar has, uh, has committed over the years, but that's for another show and another time, but once upon a time in America is uh, Ennio Morricone is uh, considered the maestro of, uh, of film music in uh, in Europe, certainly in Italy, and it's uh, it is just a shame that he did not uh, uh, that he did not win. Well, I like uh, uh, Maurice Jarre's uh, you know score. It doesn't even compare with some of his uh, uh, you know with some of his best. Uh, you know, from years ago. So I, I'd say that that was more like a, you know, that was more like a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a nod to Maurice based on his career and not based on the particular work. 
I'd also like to bring in uh, another curveball here, even though it was not nominated, nor under the rules could it have been nominated. Uh, I think it is an absolute travesty that the score to Paris, Texas was not uh, 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 given uh, given a nomination. The work that Ry Cooter does on that particular movie is friggin' amazing. Wait till Thursday. You're going to hear more of this. Oh, yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Seriously. But isn't it it something, though, that there's always, there's always, you know, not just 1984, but in, in, you know, every year, Academy season, there's always a, uh, an, an, an argument for, um, Something a film score that uh, you know that doesn't get nominated that deserves to be there's always an argument for something that falls under the radar, uh, well, and uh, yeah. Just just briefly, the reason that Paris Texas wasn't uh, nominated is that most of the score is based on an old uh, Blind Alfred Reed tune, okay, from the twenties, and therefore sure. it couldn't be used, even though it was reworked. And there was other other material. Uh, uh, it was not able to be nominated. So there. Okay. And the winner for the Golden Raspberry is was a pretty much sweeper because this movie won worst actress, worst director, and worst screenplay and worst picture. And that would be Carl's favorite from 1984, Bolero. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you. Uh, really? I just can't remember. Uh, <laughs> I, I forget what I went to see that day. And everyone else was like, oh, yeah, I went to see Sheena. There's a joke in here you'll get. And my friends, I went to see Bolero, and they're like, we're going to see Bolero. Wow. We're going to see naked women. <laughs> and if you've ever seen Sheena, Tanya Roberts. Yeah. Let's just talk about the argument real quick that Tanya Roberts had with uh, Don Coscarelli on Beastmaster. Where's your underwear? They didn't wear underwear back then. This is a fucking <laughs> PG movie. You wear fucking underwear. No, I'm dressing like they did back then. <laughs> <laughs> Anything from Bolero except for uh, the the Derek nude scenes and the fact that somehow George Kennedy is in this trying to make some sense uh, uh, some sense of it. Uh, God, what a you know. Other than the Derek uh, attraction, what a waste of celluloid. You know, really. That, oh God. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was. Like, and I hope I'm even not with the Derek attraction, it's a waste of January, celluloid. Uh, I never got her anyway. The ones that came out that we found interesting was Broadway Danny Rose, which is pretty good. One of uh, this is when Woody Allen really started to go small, wasn't it, guys? Really? Uh, yeah, uh, I think he started to go more personal um, with his, uh, you know, with his films, especially Purple Rose of Cairo. Uh, it was. It's kind of an allusion to uh, to old school Hollywood film, 
And when I mean no. small is when he started making no budget films so he could make what he wants and just get away with it easy because there's no way they could lose money. Well, pretty, you know, pretty much I, I liken them to being rather personal films, making hit, you know something that is you know, perhaps he has because of the budget uh, more control over uh, over keeping it his vision. Uh, but I think that some of these films, like that one, like Radio Days, uh, which uh, you know they're they're more homages to uh, you know to uh, you know old to a time business. in cinema and media it's and life old that show was business, uh, uh, period. Because there's also yeah. Zelig. Zelig. Yeah, Zelig. Uh, you know there there is a, uh, you know there is you know there's Zelig. There's uh, Broadway Danny Rose. Uh, you know, there is, uh, you know, some Radio wonderful, days. you know, works. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying yeah. it's bad. I'm uh, saying it's a smart move because he, he made some of his better films during that period. Like and I said, I, I think that, that some of his, his – yeah. I think it's more personal work is, uh, is during that period, really. Yeah. And the other one I'm talking about is really the cult favorite of this – this day, and that's Angel. Why do we love Angel? I mean, it's the same old story. Innocent girl off the street becomes a hooker. I mean, I can name three reasons reasons already why this movie is loved. And I get to say one of them. Rory Calhoun and Carl. Okay, yes. Susan fucking Tyrell. Yeah. Who really, who really excels at playing the, you know, playing the really off kilter, uh, you know, eccentric, uh, you know, and she's kind of like she's she's kind of on the good side, just kind of you know likable here, but when you see her in films like Night Warning and uh, uh, and uh, and so forth, she can really go go full gusto nutso. Uh, you know, Listen, like, uh, I you know, freaking like, love her. I I am in love yeah. with this woman, and have been for yeah. many many years. And 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 uh, oh. anyone who listens to this podcast knows this. You know, she also was the uh, um, uh, the narrator to Wizards, which is one of my favorite uh, Bakshi films. And this was always yeah. Queen Doris. How can you not love Queen Doris? Yeah. How can that move, How can Angel yeah. not be fun with a backup cast like that? <laughs> well, it is I, fun. to me, what hooked me in was was the whole tagline, which was "When you get to hell, tell them an angel sent you." I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 well, well, first of all, it, it, it is kind of, in a way, it's the teenage uh, or distaff version of a death wish exploitation uh in a type of uh you know type of film i mean who who you know what what uh what teenage male isn't interested in seeing a voluptuous young woman uh you know who is a uh, who's a prostitute but also carrying a gun and going out on a vengeance uh a vengeance trail it combines every yeah. it combines the two things that boys want which is gunplay and and boobs, and uh, I, I think this fits. Yeah. Go ahead. 
finish. Yes. But what I was going to say uh, is don't forget, this Angel actually got good mainstream reviews. Heck, even uh, when they did their Oscar episode, uh, Roger Ebert was talking about how Roy Calhoun should have gotten Best Supporting Actor for Angel. And I kind of agree with him. And Roy Calhoun is essentially, in a way, he's kind of playing the Walter Brennan, uh, you know, type of, uh, you know, the sidekick from any Western that you've seen, uh, you know, post-1940. Uh, you yeah. know, he is that, uh, or the, the Gabby Hayes kind of, uh, uh, you know, well, Sheriff, we got to go out and get him. You know, let's, you know, yeah. let's go out and, you know, and get this sidewinder and all that, uh, and all that stuff, but who else but a guy who did those westerns could do this type of uh, role and have fun with it? Yeah. And he has a he has a blast. He has a blast yeah. with this. And Dick Sean too. Yeah, Don't and, forget and, Dick Sean's in this. And he's a lot of fun and they too. They brought this. him back for the. They even brought him back for the sequel, Avenging Angel. Although I could never figure, you know, I, I could never. Um, Get past the recasting of Donald Wilkes to Betsy Russell, uh, you know, in the uh, in the series. I just think it doesn't it doesn't work. But you know, you're talking to a fan of the Angel series of uh, uh, series of films. There's even the part three that was uh, kind of fun. Uh, Joe Bob Briggs said it the best. He said Betsy Russell in Avenging Angel looked like she was mugged. By a roaming band of Max Factor thugs. <laughs> well, I didn't know that Max Factor had thugs, but uh, you know, I can imagine them. You know, they. No, it'd be Mary Kay. It's Mary Kay. It's not Max Factor. It's Mary Kay. Okay, Mary. <laughs> yeah, and the switch and the switchblade is a lips uh, is, a, is a large lipstick tube. You know that's. <laughs> <laughs> in 20 and uh, uh, yeah. Next up is one I think it's a weird little movie. It's got some great gags in it, and that's the lonely guy with Steve Martin. Yes. Uh, and that's one of my favorite gags ever from Steve Martin is that he's depressed and he's going to a bridge uh, to commit suicide. But when he gets right. there, there's like 20 other guys about to jump and are like, take a number and have to wait. So he just <laughs> says, I forget it. But that that's, you know, Steve Martin was, that's him making a career out of the kind of the sad sack, almost nebbishy type of, uh, you know, type of character. I kind of likened him to one that we were talking about earlier, uh, Woody Allen. It's just kind of uh, a guy who's been, you know, you saw kind of with the uh, with the jerk uh, in a certain, you know, uh, nice guy naivete. Then you see it in the lonely guy. Uh, he, he's kind of playing, you know, the uh, the put upon the put upon nebbish, as I uh, uh, as I call it, and it's kind of. Uh, you know, like you explained the scene where he's wanting to, you know, to kill himself, but he can't even do that. Uh, it reminds me, you know, even maybe he's even uh, uh, echoing a Jack Lemmon, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, kind of character from like Buddy yeah. Buddy and from like the, the Odd Couple, where uh, you, know, you can't even do death right. 
um, as far as that. So if you can't do death right, let's try to live and uh, you know maybe and see if uh, you can if your voice can still be heard in this world. And that's kind of how I looked at the, the Lonely Guy. It's a charming film. It really is. Yeah, it's a dark. Uh, it's a dark and, film and too. Don't you remember that one, Carl? The Lonely Guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I not not real well, not real well. It, um, the darkest scene in the movie is he goes up to this restaurant and it's like restaurant for single guys, and he goes in, and it's a restaurant where they set a cut a a cardboard cutout of a beautiful woman in a chair with you, so you can eat your dinner <laughs> and not feel alone. Yeah, that's kind of dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's kind of dark. I'll give you that one. And now we have I this was American Playhouse yeah. film, one of the first, and it's El Norte. And this is a really dark, dark film. If you like Mexican art films, I recommend it. And let's see, we can skip over Reckless because besides Aiden Quinn playing a 50s thug in an 80s movie, it's not that good. <laughs> Unfaithfully Yours, which is one of Carl's favorite films. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you two love each other. It's, it, it's just... <laughs> yeah, it's a, we, it's no, we do. Going on. <laughs> yeah. uh, blame it on Rio. Uh, <laughs> no, that's one of your favorites. That actually has I more actually story think... in it than it, don't, than it deserves, and that's Footloose. This is one of those uh-huh. whose story behind it is more interesting than the freaking movie. Except when John yeah. Lithgow is on screen. Other than that. That's the because true when he's story on that's screen, more it's interesting a good movie. than the movie. What happened was it was a small Indiana town where uh, they had an accident during a kid's dance in the late 60s, early 70s, where uh, th- four of the five, four of the kids got killed in it. And uh, so they banned the school dance until the 1980s. And this is what the movie was based on. Right. Now, I I agree with Carl. I I think that this film is is more about uh, the the goodwill of the cast than it is uh, than it is about the story. Uh, Whenever John Lithgow is on is on screen, I'm I'm wrapped up because uh, oh, God, you know, this yeah. guy is one of our is one of the uh, one of our premier character stars, uh, you know, of of any time, of any day, and uh, and Kevin Bacon actually has, you know, to me, he's one of the few actors who has not only the skill to be an actor, but he has the the intangible it. Which is uh, charisma on screen and likability, uh, you know, on uh, on camera, and he just kind of he holds the interest, uh, whatever it is that he is uh, he's doing. And there's a lot of you know, a lot of films more recently that he has done that are just uh, incredible works. And you're seeing now just how the depth of an actor he was. But even back then. When he was doing, uh, you know, Diner, and when he was doing uh, in Friday the Thirteenth, uh, he, you know, he still showed that that something that says, "Keep an eye on this, uh, uh, on this young man. It's going to be interesting." Uh, oh, me and Carl have I, a I, joke. It's like 
John Lithgow's character is like you watch a movie and you see someone like the John Lithgow's character and you're like, I don't want to see this movie. I want to see the movie that he's in. That's going to be <laughs> yeah, interesting. Really. One. Oh, how many times I could tell you, uh, I could tell you that, I, you know, this movie is crap. I want to see what this guy is acting in because I think that's, you know, that's more interesting. Oh, that's an yeah. oh. age-old standard. And next is uh, Lassiter, which is one of the things where they never could get Tom Selleck into the right role for him. Well, at least until Quigley Down Under, but that was in the 90s. It was too late. Well, I'm going to tell you that I think that Tom Selleck was uh, was better in a more suited role for another film that uh, I believe was that, that same year, which was, uh, which was Runaway. Um, Runaway. And, oh God, uh, yeah. That which, one's better than it has any right to be. Yeah, you know exactly my uh, you know my thought, and I thought the cast was more appealing than really it had any uh, any right to be. Uh, we have Kirstie Alley as the uh, uh, as the uh, the heroine. You have Selleck as the Selleck is kind of playing the '80s uh, the '80s version of the. Rock Hudson, square jawed leading man, uh, you know, type Only of, uh, you know, type of role. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and and of course, you know, who, uh, you know, who doesn't, you know, get uh, get intrigued about Gene Simmons as the villain? Uh, I want to see that Simmons movie. Gene Simmons' best villain role is not this year. Is never too young to die. That is Gene Simmons' <laughs> best villain role. You are are you a closet John Stamos fan? I mean, you know, <laughs> no, I'm a closet Gene Simmons in full drag leading uh, Freddy Krueger around <laughs> on a dog collar, calling every one of his guy bitches fan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gonna say I, I'm a fan merely merely of the fact that uh, that that John Stamos, if who whatever wrote you, know, whoever wrote the film. Could ever conceive that John Stamos could be the son of former James Bond George Lazenby uh, in, uh, in, in that? I could not put the genetics together. <laughs> yeah, really, the next I agree. Is a movie that me and Carl fight about. I like it. Carl doesn't, but we both agree that James Woods is great in this, and that's against all odds. I like it. it yeah. Especially if you're in, the, you know, if you're into the very noirish, uh, it's kind of a noirish throwback in a uh, in a sense, uh, you know, love story, intrigue, shady, uh, you know, character. There's, you know, there's there's murder going, uh, you know, going on and in, in all this stuff. Plus, it doesn't Jeff Bridges just have something that that keeps you glued to the screen? Uh, yeah. as, as far as the interesting characters uh, that he is uh, that he has portrayed, and I'm very glad that he finally uh, won you know won the Oscar uh, all those you know, many uh, many years later. Uh, what was it for True Grit? Uh, right. And he uh, he he's just he's he's what you call the earthy. 
casual acting, uh, mm-hmm. you know, style. And I think it really, uh, it, it, it really works here. And I liked it in Against All Lots. I'm not a big fan of the film. It is kind of slow and plotting, and it, and, and it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't. The, the problem it, with it, it for me that. is that it's too clean. It's too clean. It's too. Yeah. It, it, you know, and I think I, I really have to argue that they got the wrong director with Taylor Hackford. Yeah. I think if somebody else would have gotten that, it would have been a lot more grittier. To me, it was too clean and too Hollywoody. Yeah. But as as, as Stephen said, when James Woods yeah. is on there, or when Richard Whitmark has his one one scene in there, it crackles. Hey, Carl. Right. What? Did you fuck her? It felt good to fuck her, didn't she? She's got a nice tight. Yeah, actually, it did. I'm, I'm gonna let you know that. Yeah, that I love that when James Wood just had Jeff Bridges there and he was saying that stuff, and Jeff Bridges wanted to knock the living crap out of him, and James was like, "I know you can't touch me." <laughs> you know who would have been the perfect director for the, uh, for that? Just thinking of it as a as a guy like Sidney Lumet. Uh, you know, would have. Yeah, and this is a noir guy or someone that wasn't afraid to get dirty. Yeah, seriously. That's my biggest problem with that movie. I, you know, I've got a trivia question for you guys. Carl knows it. Let's see if you know it. What was uh, the first movie to debut on VHS and was such a VHS hit? That it got a theatrical release. I have no idea. I'm going to be quite upfront and honest about that. Alex Cox's Repo Man. <laughs> With the wonderful Emilio Estevez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird. That movie nice. was put out as VHS as the first direct to VHS full premiere. But the movie got so popular on VHS and got so many good reviews that they started putting it out to theaters. Sure, yeah. sure. And and, uh, uh, and and that's another film that goes completely under the radar, but it's since gotten a real serious cult status over the years. Well, okay. that all has to do with one man with three names, and that would be Harry Dean Stanton. And, Who just owns and, I would, that and I would fight you with Cy Richardson. Cy Richardson too. I'll give you Cy Richardson. I'll give you Cy. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm say more Harry Dean I don't allow that shit in my car. What eating? Supposed to be on golf. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, I'm gonna go with Harry Dean Stanton. I'm gonna yeah. go Harry Dean Stanton for that uh, for that film because you, it, it, it's interesting that and I, I kind of noticed this when um, uh, when uh, when Mr. Stanton passed away a few years ago the uh, I started to realize you don't really think about it but this guy has been in everything you know and and, and he's always you know playing these uh, you know these uh, you know these these kind of character, you know, these atmosphere characters. He's kind of, you know, he, he's always playing the, uh, uh, you know, these eccentric types from Alien to, you know, to, uh, you know, to other films. Do you realize 
my God, this guy's been in everything. The range that he has and his oh, long yeah. tenure in Hollywood, oh. you don't realize, you realize it. Um, Did you but, know yeah, there I was a local with punk band from Los Angeles called those goddamn Ramirez brothers or whatever the two names <laughs> are called? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, Exactly. And if you do see Repo Man, get the Criterion just so you can watch the TV version. Why? Because they picked the most. Have you ever seen the TV version? I know Carl has. No, I have. I've only seen the film version uh, three times, as a matter of fact, uh, oh, I recall. Okay, you, you got to see the TV the version thing? just for the dubbing. Trust us. Yeah. Well, I'm they picked the I'm most absurd words. Like, here's an actual word from it. Hey, why don't you get the flip out of here? Flip you, flip you, you melon farmer. Oh, yeah, flip you, you flip and flip. Oh, yeah, go flip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, motherfucker, melon farmer, fuck his flip. I mean, it's uh. hilarious. <laughs> it's almost even funnier than the movie. The actual cut just comes well. <laughs> I have to tell I have to tell people all the time is that if you don't if something is available on the Criterion uh, collection if you don't get Criterion don't bother with uh, with getting the film at all uh, they do the absolute most first rate uh, you know job of uh, of uh, remastering of presentation extras and everything that you could possibly uh, you could possibly want. And this is, uh, you know, uh, you know, this, this, this is, this is no joke. Is if you, it, if it's on Criterion, and on something, uh, you know, something else at the same time, get it on Criterion and forget everything else. That's what you need to do. Yeah. You know. So, and next so I, up, I and we're skipping over a Sahara because we can. Is there? Right. Uh, this is Final Tap, which is the greatest and the worst. Musicians said this is the greatest and the worst parody they've ever seen. Because if you watch This Is Spinal Tap before you're doing the gig, it'll ruin your entire show. <laughs> now, I'm going to say, though, that what you know, what gives me more laughs than This Is Spinal Tap is Best in Show. Yeah, uh, without a doubt. I love Best in Show. Yeah, that but one's this really one, good I, as the best of the guest movies. Yeah, but this was really the coming out for, for Christopher Guest. Yeah. You know, everyone, yeah. you know, it was yeah. all marketed as a Rob Reiner film. But once we saw what it was and we knew it was Harry Shearer, McKean, uh, Guest, uh, uh, those guys, just... Michael you know, Hawking, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Michael Hawking, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. just just an incredible uh, coming out party and just saying, we're here and we're going to make you laugh for a number of years. Yeah, and my favorite have. scene is not the funniest yeah. one. It's the scene where they're listening to their old 60s song right before a gig, and then all of a sudden, whatever happened to these guys? And you see the whole band's <laughs> demeanor just change. It's like they're like real happy, you know, like yeah, they're gonna promote the. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to see the song again. 
I got to No, no, I, I have to, I have to go with the Stonehenge. St- Stonehenge to me is fucking hysterical and supposedly based yeah. on an actual uh, yeah, thing that happened. Yeah, based on an actual thing with Deep Purple version one. They were supposed to get this prop and it become that small. He said, "You shouldn't Stonehenge." Shouldn't make a little three foot wall midget look like fucking Godzilla. (laughs) 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 Now I need to watch it again, Damon. I'm watching it tonight. (laughs) Children of the Corn, why is this movie so loved when I could barely get through the damn thing? I'm like, no, this sucks. I you know, I think it was it, it it's riding on the coattails of Stephen King. other King films, better films, King films of the decade. Uh, I don't think it's the most horrendous piece of shit that uh, that that some have thought. Um, I, I, no, I'm not while Max Bowers is still out there. <laughs> Oh, the less said about that one, the better. Okay. Uh, okay. So, so but, one thing before we go on here, I just want everyone yeah. to know that nine months from now, I want you to mark your calendars, and nine months from now in February, you know, the, the first week of February, you know, all these babies are going to be born, and they'll be called children of the corona. By Tony Richardson, who's who's yeah. a damn good director. Yeah, yeah, it does not work. No, I, I'd, I'd much rather focus on you know I, other stuff that Jodie Foster has uh, you know has done. That one was kind of you expected a lot more, and it just wasn't you know happening. Uh, it, it just it just seems to you expect a lot more from Tony Richardson. You expect a lot more. Uh, you know, from that cast, and it after the runtime is over, you're just like, okay, this huh? is a real wasted opportunity. Yeah. It is interesting to watch for the cast, and if you're a Richardson devotee, it has his usual his usual uh, flourishes, uh, camera wise and, uh, and and so forth, and character wise. But still, it is it is a failure. Uh, you hate to. Uh, Hate to say what when I look at 1984, I'm looking at, uh, at at films like Amadeus and and and, and you know which I think yeah, is, we'll is, is, is just yeah it, it's just and one of the finest uh, finest files. Uh, story and calls yeah. want to go more into death is you have an officer and a gentleman for thanks to get this movie. This movie right here was made in 78, 79. And the soundtrack was we'll go, call go more detail. It was made in the same time. Well, it, 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 then, actually, actually, the, uh, you got that a little wrong. It, well, it was like made said, in, in, in the early eighties. 
But the thing is, it was made in the early eighties, and um, yeah, it was thrown on the shelf. They, they had problems, years. and the reason was that they didn't like where James Bridges took the screenplay. So when he finally got it back in production, he hired Joe Jackson to do the music, and Joe Jackson did a whole score of it, and they pushed the fact that Joe was doing this. I was living in New York at the time, and so like, you get to this, you get to this, and you're here, and I'm a huge Joe Jackson fan. So I went to see this movie, and the first thing I see is music by John Barry. And the first words out of my mouth, what the fuck? And so I learned later that there was huge uh, uh, difficulty with, um, they did not like where Bridges went with the screenplay. The releasing company held it up again and then had John Barry write the new score and put it on the movie without James Bridges' uh, okay. And so after the movie was released about a week, then there were all sorts of lawsuits that went by. And finally what happened, all the music that Joe Jackson had written for it orchestrally came out two years later uh, in an album called Willpower. And that was the actual soundtrack that he had written for it. Uh, And so, so yeah, this is – and and the problem is you know that people screwed with this movie because it could have been really, really good. And it's just, what the fuck was that? What did they do to this thing? And the only so reason there, that Mike's murder came out, this is what we're talking about, is because Deborah Winger was the was the ingenue of the moment after an officer and a gentleman. Right. Yeah, and, yep. and, and that's, it's interesting because there's so much possibility as to uh, uh, as to how Mike's murder could have been uh, could have been played out. I you know I like it. I like the presence of uh, of Deborah Winger. Um, I prefer her an officer and a gentleman, but uh, I, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of that whole murder mystery. Uh, uh, again, we talked about there was a resurgence of noir. In uh, uh, in the eighties and nineties, uh, and and I I, yeah, I love well, noir too. I'm a big noir fan. But yeah, this was it's just, weird. Each decade has their seventies noir. Then there was the eighties noir period, which was more pretty. Yeah, the eighties. Well, the eighties is more watching. Pretty. Well, I don't know. I don't know about pretty. If you're watching, uh, uh, you were watching Frankenheimer's Fifty Two Pickup. Uh, no, that with, was not uh, pretty. <laughs> yeah, that no, was like eighty nine ninety. We'll get into that one later. Don't worry. I love sure, sure. But yeah, you yeah. started seeing them in the early eighties. They started dark with Body Heat, but then after Against All Odds was a big hit. They all got pretty, you know, stylized. Well, I, I, Miami Vice style, so everything was bright in Miami. Yep. Yeah. See, I I think it. I I, I agree with you. I could see the change right there. It really. I'll add. Uh, Postman always rings twice. The uh, uh, the Jack uh, Nicholson Jessica Lang remake to Body Heat and say that here you started out as something really dark, really seamy, really sultry, sexy, raw, and then you go into and I think it's in part because of the 
because of the Michael Mann um, Miami Vice popularity that you saw, you know, uh, that you saw later in the 80s. And you saw the bright Florida, uh, you know, palm trees and everything like, uh, like that. And I, I think in some sense it was an attempt to hide the noir, basically keep it under the surface. But to me, it still just makes it too bright, too bubbly. <laughs> and what's sad is, is they took Michael Mann, but if you actually watch Miami Vice, the series, that's a very dark, grim, depressing noir series. <laughs> for, for the most part, uh, it, it, it's just... I wish that at times that somebody would have told the, uh, you know, the, the cameraman that, uh, you know, palm trees and bright light, uh, bright lighting are, net, are in a way are counter to what you're trying to do with dark and noir, uh, yeah. you know. But it so, has one of the most noir endings ever, which is Crockett and Tubbs just walked in and said, we're sick of this shit. Fuck it. And just threw their badges on the desk and walked out. That was the end. They didn't yeah. get. Now that's I mean, not, if you really watch yeah. it. They didn't get any of the bad guys. Basically, they kept getting into trouble. No matter how much drugs they stopped, more drugs kept coming in. What I what I looked at is they they were kind of like the guys who, uh, uh, you know, who were were thrown into the sewer for the you know, the, the for sewer cleanup, and all they could do was to keep the worst shit at bay. You know, keep yeah. the plague off of the, uh, you know, the plague rats from, uh, from, you know, from getting out onto the street, so to speak. And, and they're doing this the for people... 20 years. They're doing this for 20 years. They say, I had it. I, you know, I've, it's actually kind of the same kind of thing that uh, Harry Callahan goes through, uh, you know, the Dirty Harry films where he's kind of looking at life like, you know, like I'm sick of this. I, I, I'm the one that, why they call me Dirty Harry, I'm the guy that goes in and deals with this, uh, with this mud shit, you know, that, uh, yeah. that kind of thing. That's what I looked at with Crockett and Tubbs. And we're going to skip over Splash Besides. How amusing is that a 1982 PG film, when they released it on Disney uh, streaming nowadays, they did their damnedest to censor every butt shot, every boob shot. <laughs> In the whole movie with CGI hair that looks completely out of place. It's a, it's a damn Disney PG. Leave it alone. Yeah. Leave the movie alone. We're, by the way, it's, you know, I think the film that I like even uh, more than that, I was not a huge uh, Splash uh, fan. But talking about 1984, I'm a big fan of Bachelor Party with uh, yeah. uh, with, with we'll Tom Hanks. I that. think it's raw. Funny, and, uh, funny film. Here in Police Academy, that one was surprise. Yeah. That one was the surprise hit of the year. And now, here's a big question, Carl. Yeah. Uh, Bolero okay. was uh, won the Golden Raspberry for worst film of the year. Okay. In the same year that Slapstick of Another Kind came out. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, wait, wait. So if you hate so someone you're, you're in not, a Jerry Lewis fan, put on Slapstick of Another Kind. 
No, if you but really want to hurt someone who's a Madeline Kahn fan, put on Slapstick. Oh, God, I was going to say, who's, who's not a fan of, of Jerry Lewis and Madeline Kahn? Uh, except this film. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, and, I, and I'll tell you this. I'm a diehard, um, diehard Jerry Lewis fan. Uh I will say that everything, that just about everything, with the exception of his last film that he did, Max Rose, before he died, I will say everything from 1970 on from uh, Jerry Lewis was shit. Uh, hey, you, Cracking you know, Up was, wasn't that well, bad. Which, which one? Cracking Up. Uh, okay. Uh, anyway, the uh, <laughs> no, I think with the exception. King of Comedy is, is, of course, it's Marty Scorsese. It's not really, uh, yeah. you know, Jerry Lewis doing it. But, but look at how they working. Which, Arizona yeah. Dream, Amir Kurtzfeldt. Uh, the, the Finnish guy, Amir or whatever his name is. Right. But you're looking at mostly film, you know, films like, uh, you know, like I, I'm not a big fan of Cracking Up, uh, Hardly Working. You're talking about, uh, you know, Slapstick of Another Kind. Uh, this was just the type of Lewis formula that, for years, was no longer uh, was no longer working. And uh, the only person I, you know I think that that didn't get it was him. Was you know was was Jerry. And it's almost like a uh, uh, it, it's almost like a stubborn a, a, a stubborn adherence to what at one time worked, uh, you know, for him and his refusal to be, uh, you know, to, to, to move with the times. And, uh, I think Max Rose is, uh, is, is, is just one of his best. It's kind of, uh, um, you know, it's almost like a, a you know, a, a tribute, uh, as it were to, uh, uh, you know, to a life in film and television. Um, yeah. But I, I, I had promise because I'm a big Susan Oliver fan and, I'm a, and, and, and being a big Jerry Lewis fan, I had a promise, I had prom, uh, you know, a feeling that hardly working was going to work, and it just didn't. It just hardly know, worked. I found myself. What's that? Hardly worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it, you know, now, it, moving exactly, on to you, a good it, film. Well, according to me, but I've gotten into many fights with a Tarzan fan. When they when I say this is one of the best Tarzan movies ever made, and they're like, "No, this was stupid. It didn't have Johnny Weissmiller. It didn't have ah." I'm like, "Yes, this is why Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, was a great movie. I loved it. It was more closer to the Edgar Burrow books than most of the movies." You do have to get past uh, Christopher Lambert's rather No, Lambert was good. Stuff. He was good. No, I, I, he, he's the guy that you have to kind of take a while to warm to because yeah. he has a rather cold style of act, uh, cold acting style. And yeah. uh, I, I like this, either, either the film because it's a more faithful uh, representation, more faithful adaptation to. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs stories, and it, um, it, it to me it really it's a very if you could say Tarzan is uh, is elegant 
in any way, shape, or form. This is an elegant depiction of uh, yeah. of, of Tarzan, and I liked it on that uh, on that basis. What do you think of it, Carl? I liked it. Um, one thing about it is I'm a huge Ralph Richardson fan. I love Sir Ralph Richardson, and he's wonderful in this. I thought it was good. I I didn't think it was outstanding, but I did like the idea that it was, um, I won't say more faithful to Burroughs, but more faithful to how Tarzan became Tarzan. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay, what's next? Next is what I consider the best uh, Raiders of the Lost ripoff film there was. (laughs) <laughs> no, it was You know this one is And I played the song at the first of the show And that's Romancing the Stone With Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner And Danny DeVito It is just fun You can watch the screen and tell that Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner Are having so much fun During this movie <laughs> this, this is one of those ones though, Where I, I will say that Where the the supporting cast, especially Danny DeVito, to me were more interesting than the stars. And uh, well, the as stars much as I like Captain Turner, they were going until they backed off. One of my yeah. favorite moments is uh, when they meet the dictator, and then he says uh, to them, yeah. "He's like, are you John Richardson, who writes the romantic books? Uh, yes. Oh, I love your books. I read them to all my men." <laughs> Hey, guys, it's Jonah. <laughs> By the way, do you know who that was? Do you know the who? actor? Who? That's Alfonso Aral, oh, the director oh. of Like Water for Chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. Also, yeah. Now, it's also Watch you put a too. smile on your face. Oh. It's definitely, uh, Romance in the Stone is definitely one of those ones where you just, you're going to see it. Just, just sit and have a grand time. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it really makes no bones about the fact of what it is. Uh, it doesn't pretend to be a big epic or anything of, of, of note. Let's just go out and have uh, and have fun, Indiana Jones kind of uh, kind of style. Let's poke a little fun at it. That's how I looked uh, looked at it. Very enjoyable. The same thing with its sequel, Jewel of the uh, Jewel of the Nile. Uh, yeah. oh. You know, it's like a reunion of old friends. And you know that scene where he, Michael Douglas slides down that mud hill straight into uh, Kathleen uh-huh. Turner's crotch, uh-huh. and he jumps up and goes, "Woohoo! I want to do it again." <laughs> that was an improv. <laughs> that was his actual reaction on the first take after sliding down that mud hill. <laughs> When you can you can imagine Michael Douglas and uh, and uh, Turner reacting like that, you know, have the, those two I understand had had a really good chemistry, uh, you know, uh, working and they're the good friends to this day. And of course, they would go on to do um, not just that, but didn't they also do War of the Roses? And um, yeah, uh, you know, which a lot other, of people got mad because it wasn't the same thing. Which I I love War of the Roses. <laughs> Okay, next. Okay, here's yeah. some new sad news. Uh, Twilight Time, the 
DVD, Blu-ray company is going out of business. You know, oh. right now I checked. It's eleven ninety-five for the Blu-ray, and it's a long story to get where we're going. Uh, me and Carl had debated that the reason that I say the reason Robin Williams didn't work in Popeye is that he didn't have his acting chops yet. I can see that. Uh, And we're at the film uh, where he got them. And that is the most, one of the more underrated films from the 80s. You don't see many 80s or Rob Williams fans talk about this one, do you guys? Moscow and the Hudson. I love this movie. No, I freaking love you this see, film. You see more of you, you see more of the world according to Garp, and uh, and you know, even like Survivors, which you did with uh, with Walter Matthau, and, uh, and so but you don't really hear as much about Moscow and the Hudson, and I think that that might be his most accomplished work. Uh, you know, to be honest, not just with the '80s, but of Throughout his um, career, all his career. Uh, the one thing about yeah. this film, okay, we have to bring up the director. Paul Mazursky is one of my favorite directors, so I think I've gotten short shrift over the years. Um, sure, and sure. he did quiet, quiet character studies more than anything else, or an ensemble character study. And here he exactly. talks. It's Robin Williams, who is a Russian um, musician. Uh, sure. And comes over to New York and decides to defect and uh, and falls for Maria Conchito Alonso and, and Cleveland Derricks is in it. It's a wonderful, wonderful, just quiet, lovely film, and also a Valentine to New York City at the time. Seriously, yeah, exactly. One of my favorite moments is who plays it? Ruben Blades plays his lawyer, right? Uh-huh. No, no, that's Yakov Smirnoff is his lawyer, isn't it? No, is it, I mean no. the Cuban guy. No, it's Alejandro Ray. It's Alejandro Ray. Yeah, where he yeah. talks about yeah. just walking out on the beach, coming from Cuba, and then immediately got there, some uh, guy gave him like a twenty, a forty dollar tip just to go get him a drink. Uh-huh. And he said, "That's how I was introduced to America." Or little scenes like the scene where he's going to the grocery store for the first time and he sees all the different cereals and stuff and he's just overwhelmed by the sense of choice so he basically just has a breakdown in the store. But let's not forget that part of that is is going back to how Mazursky, as a kid, when they came in from, from Europe, I think it was Poland. Don't don't quote me on that. You know how he reacted, and how his family reacted, and 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 so he wanted to bring that to screen. And 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 Williams is just perfect in this role. He just is wonderful. And by the way, I'll 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 clue you in on something that I thought uh, really what was what kind of. Drew me to this, uh, you know, to this role was the Alejandro Ray being in it, and yeah. because I followed Alejandro Ray as as a kid, I was huge fan of the uh, the Flying Nun TV series, and 
you know, I'd, I'd see the, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, this character, this uh, uh, Hispanic, uh, your character showing up, and I said, so when I found out it was Alejandro Ray that was, uh, you know, that was playing in it, I, you know, and I, and I was a Robin Williams fan, you know, too, of course, from Mork and Mindy and, uh, uh, and World According to Garp and all this stuff, but when I saw that Alejandro Ray uh, was going to be in this film, and I said to myself, I, I didn't know that, first of all, that he was alive still, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, then. And then I just, you know, said, I've got to see this uh, this film because this is a, you know, this is such a, uh, is of the Ricardo Montalban type of, uh, you know, type of actors uh, as far as, uh, you know, just pure screen charisma. And so I had to, I had to see it. So it's kind of a, kind of a hook that Alejandro was, uh, Ray was in it that got me to see Moscow on the Hudson. Yeah, you need to see it if you haven't, if you're there. I mean, it's just great. And I and to close it out, I think it's ironic that one of the best films about America and why it is loved is a movie all about people who aren't American, according to the modern definition. Yes, absolutely. Don't you, don't you think it's a little bit of you have to, in, in order to uh, – uh, Get a more accurate depiction of you as a culture. Mm-hmm. It needs to be observed by somebody outside your culture. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm going to skip I, over I a lot that. of teen bait movies now. And yeah. if you want to listen to my Friday 13th Part 4, go listen to the show that me and Fred did. It's good. Now we're <laughs> on to what I consider one of the most. Oh, Noah, I skipped over one that we need to talk about. And this is one that the studio didn't like because of how odd it was. It didn't have a romance. It didn't have your typical plot. They didn't have any baits to hook it on. And that would be Swing Shift by uh, Jonathan Demme. Interesting uh, interesting film on... Another quirky, dimmy kind of character study, uh, you know, type of uh, you know piece. He's another one we talked about directors who work with uh, oddball characters and uh, odd eccentrics and so forth. We're, we're just talking about Moscow and the Hudson and Paul Mazursky. Uh, yeah. Here's another guy that that does a, that that uses the eccentric, the characters on the fringe. To uh, kind of give us an examination of uh, you know of the human condition, and I think uh, I actually liked it. I think it was quirky and had a sense of a sense yeah. of fun to it. And uh, Emmy actually did record the did do interviews with women who did work in the factories during that era in World War II, where the women first got out of the houses and stuff. Right. And I, and I have to say that oh, yeah. I have to say that Goldie Hawn and particularly Christine Lottie, I think, do a wonderful job in this film. Doesn't Goldie Hawn just have that 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 something that you know we talk about <laughs> Kevin Bacon and others? That's something that kind of draws you to her. That yeah, really, well, I uh, control, which, yeah. It was the late later eighties when she started getting the fluff roles like Overboard and stuff like that. But in her early stuff, well, really, 
I just watched Dollars uh, about a month ago, and I love yeah. that role. Now, oh, I, before I, you I go on, Stephen, before you go on, I, I do uh, want to jump back and talk about a movie you passed over. So when we're done with uh, this one. Well, I, now you guys are I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Goldie Hawn. I want to watch Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox again. And uh, and private band. Why? And, uh, and just, <laughs> Not one I of my my it. favorite movies. You know, it, it, Private Benjamin is just is is just funny, especially when she's commenting about the color of the uh, of the drapes and stuff like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, all you have is green. I mean, can we... <laughs> anyway. So, so uh, I want to go back to a film uh, that I consider one of the best science fiction films of uh, the year and probably the decade, and people have forgotten about it. And it's directed by Fred Shepsey, who gave us uh, truly some wonderful uh, uh, Australian films. Oh, that and was the also next did... one to come up, man. Springship uh, was the month before. Yep. That's why I passed this over, and you're right. You know, and, and this one is just this. This one is one of my all-time favorite films, particularly of this decade. I think it's forgotten. I think it's a shame. And the basic story is they find a frozen Neanderthal who's played by John Lone, who's fucking amazing in this movie. And it doesn't have a love story. It, uh, it, 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 it's not even really a, a science fiction to a number of people. But it's I not think even it's a, a great movie. film. Iceman. Yeah, Iceman. Very interesting, you know, very interesting film. And John Lone was a was an actor that I thought you were really going to see a lot more of. I loved him in Year of the Dragon, um, and uh, of course I'm a, a Mickey Rourke fan, uh, and. I thought you would really see, you know, more of just the alone was, uh, you know, was the intense, uh, seeming method, uh, you know, a- actor that uh, I think would have, you, you should have had a, a perfect niche carved out in the uh, in the eighties, and it, to me, it just didn't, it just didn't happen at least internationally. Um, no. But I, I agree with you. I, I love him as an actor, and I would have loved to have seen, you know, uh, a, you know, seen a thirty-year career, thirty years, uh, you know, film career or more with him. Well, Can you, you imagine thing... John Lone as a bad guy in the nineties? Uh, oh, absolutely. John Woo action film. Oh yeah. Why well, is this? I was say I could see him as a. Uh, uh, as a James Bond villain uh, in, uh, you know, any one of the Pierce Brosnan, uh, you know, ones or uh, uh, or something like that. He was like the that. best thing about see... the shadow with Alec Baldwin. Oh, yeah. Yes, which was a lot of fun. And I, and I point that film as one of the under-the-radar comic book superhero films uh, that, uh, you know, that really – people have forgotten about. You talked about... Well, I can explain uh, what happened to hit the Phantom Easy. That year and that summer, yeah. uh, Universal spent every cent uh, extra of its advertising budget 
on Mission Impossible. Right. And that's why The Shadow right. and The Phantom both came out, and they didn't have no advertising budget, almost no trailers, no promotion. They just came out. And they're both good. It, 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 it's a shame because those are two gem, uh, you know, films with, uh, you know, Treat Williams as a villain uh, in uh, – uh, uh, you with uh, you know you've got Alec Baldwin uh, as the uh, you know as the you know as the Lamont Cranston uh, you know who better I think to portray the hero in the shadows the hero in the uh, uh, you know behind the uh, under the fedora than Alec Baldwin I think and it's just yeah. just have the comic book vibe actually I will I'll tell you that one of the minor flaws that I find with the Disney Marvel is that they don't have that pulp feel to them a lot of the time. And yeah. the Shadow and the Phantom do. Yeah. And moving on, yeah. Carl, are you anyway. there? Yeah, I'm here. I've only got two words to say and see if we can take it from here. Amos Poe. Well, have you ever heard of the Brooklyn Alphabet? No, what is it? It's fucking A, fucking B, fucking C, fucking D. (laughs) (laughs) And that's directly from this movie. It's called Alphabet City. It's one of my greatest, greatest gags I've ever fucking heard. Seriously. And it's one of the best (laughs) New York movies of that era. Oh, absolutely. It really is. It really is. Um, it has that New York uh, milieu, doesn't it? That that whole, uh, you know, that whole... Uh, let, let me explain this, okay? Because I was in New on. York at the time. I worked in the East Village, okay? And I had friends of mine, and I was trying very, very hard to get into the no-budget group, and that would be... a you know, and so so I spent lots of times in the East Village, and then of course Alphabet City, which is east of there, and that's when Alphabet City was uh, basically post-war to France. Used to go to a place uh, where the the building was bombed out, but the the uh, um, the cellar was still still alive, and that was an after-hours club. That's how crazy it got down there. And this just absolutely nails what it, what it's like in New York at that point in time. Well, I think you have to credit a writer like Gregory Heller to uh, you know to really you know uh, to really you know give that uh, accurate kind of uh, you know the detailed uh, venue at the time. Uh, yeah, it, it really does. You know. I mean, there's a handful of films that really, when I think of New York City, that really, you know, speak New York City or really say it. Prince of the City, uh, you know, from 81, uh, in a sense, Take Your Pelham, 1, 2, 3, from 74. Uh, there's very few. Uh, Serpico, Sidney Lumet. Sidney Lumet was, the, was, was just the best at capturing the grit and the grime of uh, yeah. You know, of, of New York, 
And Don't forget he, that he the was, whole Larry Cohen uh, 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 segment that he did in New York too. He was very much a New Yorker. Yeah. Well, you very, and you see that in Q. You see that in uh, a, a lot of ones. Yeah, uh, I would absolutely agree with uh, agree with that. But talking about Alphabet City, that's one of the first times that I saw Michael Winslow. I actually saw that film before I saw Police Academy. And I realized right. just how there's much more to this guy than just the uh, than than just the uh, uh, you know the uh, the jokester than just the uh, uh, you know the comic. Uh, and, well, you guys uh, remember how uh, Michael Winslow got the role in Police Academy, don't you? Uh, no, go ahead and say it. Tell me. It was his bit during the scene where Cheech is stoned on acid, dripping. Oh. In Nice Dreams, where he does the Jimmy oh, Hendrix right. bit. Oh, right. My all in my brain. Excuse me while I eat this fly. Cheats <laughs> oh. <laughs> and Chong is another, is another subject. We can go on for two more hours. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this oh, is a weird my, one right oh, here. It's breaking. It's like one part... Your typical break dance movie from the 80s. And then all of a sudden it stops and lets one of the dancers recreate a Gene Kelly dance. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Might as well give credit to Gene Kelly because I freaking love it. Gene Kelly. Yeah. If you love <laughs> movies about <laughs> dancing, the dance scenes in Breaking are great. Legitimately oh, they're, great. They're incredible. A lot kind of sucks, but the dance scenes are great. Uh, oh. I can honestly say I successfully avoided the breaking, uh, you know, series, especially breaking two or electric boogaloo. I would recommend that, uh, the first one. The second one is kind of dumb, but yeah, the first one is just yeah. good if you like a a good dancing movie, you know. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, that's just. Well, I think I was. I think I was seeing too many other candles because eh, it's. I always well anything <laughs> that John Hughes does, I consider crap in the eighties. Sorry, fans. And Firestarter, <laughs> hey, no, there's only no, two no, no. reasons to see it. Well, one reason to be exact. Okay. The second reason okay. is Martin Sheen, but the real reason is just seeing George C. Scott as a scumbag. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I think this that is Drew Barrymore kind of. And we can pass this next one up, and that's fuck the natural. Okay, if you really want to detail it, one of our sports episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on, let him say what he's saying. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'd say with the 1984, I mean, you know, there's so many, it was such a big year in film that you're, you're naming like, so many great films, and there's still so many great films that are on the, ta- that are on the, uh, uh, on, on the table that we haven't even mentioned, like Tightrope and, uh, yeah, we got uh, and, those. and Dreamscape. Well, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get, get there. In. Yeah, okay. And, and right. here's a movie right. that's important because this movie is one of the big three that created the PG-13 rating, and that's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which 
A lot of Indiana Jones fans like, but I think is a piece of <clears throat> shit. I'm with you. There's none of the fun uh, that's it, in Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade. It's just a mean-spirited little film. It actually comes across to me as totally manufactured, uh, as if yeah. they, you know, they, they took all the spirit out, the soul out of the first one in making this this feature. I, I, I really think they get it back in Last Crusade, uh, you know, at the end of the decade. But this one's a misfire here for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Carl knows this because I told him, see if you know, what film was on Gene Siskel's worst and best films of 1984, Liz? Worst and best films? Uh, yeah. Gosh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have a clue. Once Upon a Which Time show? in America, the short, bastrated, castrated cut is on the worst of 1984, Liz. Number one. And the long version is number one on the best. Well, the long version makes more uh, a lot more sense. It's a lot more um, uh, cohesive storyline than uh, you know whoever whoever butcher cut the uh, uh, the the guy who edited the, uh, the Academy series. Yeah. But if what you credit that should, you know, should have been relegated to, uh, you know, to doing high school sex films, uh, you know, uh, you know, then uh, uh, and not doing anything anymore, any more feature films, that was rough to uh, to see. I would agree with uh, with Mr. Sisko. The the long version is far superior. Well, the short version was two hours. No, one hundred one minutes, wasn't it, Carl? Or was it two hours? It was like, uh, no, nah, it was about 110. It was a little under yeah, two. 110 but... minutes. The long cut is yeah. three hours. You think they might have been a little bit lost when you have over two hours and almost two hours and 20 minutes of footage missing. Yeah. Uh, really. Yeah. That's not just. But I, I always. Now, I always maintain that uh, that audiences, uh, it's it's never about the running time on a, on a film being too long. It's about the film that's uh, yeah that's within that uh, that running time. It's about the story, the characters, and uh, uh, and and the setup. Uh, if you've got a good story, good characters, good setup, three hours yeah. isn't going to matter much to the film, you know, to the film guard. But sometime next month, me and. Uh... Adam Friends are going to be doing, and Carl too, hopefully, are going to be doing a live watch of Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah. We'll be doing that. Fantastic. I'll have to, I'll have to tune in. That's going to be, that'll, that'll be a lot of fun. A movie where they fucking ruined it in the trailer. They took every good twist of this movie and put it in the trailer. And the director, one Leonard Nimoy, was said to say after he seen the trailer, fuck, shit, fuck, god damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, how would you feel if you was trying, the Enterprise gets destroyed in Star Trek Three, and you was doing your goddamnedest to keep it a secret, and then some idiot marketing put, yeah, that's how we're going to sell the movie. On the one scene that you're trying to bust your balls and work to keep secret. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, I agree that uh, it's not uh, that uh, putting all of your twists into the trailer is not uh, is not a good idea to uh, uh, get people to uh, you know to watch the you know watch the film and be surprised with it. I uh, I do think the film, uh, you know, the film still works as a, as a result. It didn't reveal too much, uh, you know, to me beyond the Enterprise being, uh, you know, being destroyed because I, you know, you're able to, you know, to see does Spock come back and uh, and and so forth and how and there's a whole lot of good stuff to, uh, you know, to enjoy with Star Trek: The Search for Spock, uh, minus Christopher Lloyd's completely. Ineffectual performance as the uh, as the the villainous Klingon Krug. After Back uh, to the Future, it it's kind of hard to take uh, Christopher Lloyd seriously as a villain, except for maybe in well, you're, Frames you're, Roger Rabbit. Well, you're also you're watching Christopher Lloyd being uh, fresh off of Reverend Jim and in, in Taxi, lovable, likable, yeah. goofy. And so when you see him in that, he has a very particular acting style. Which is very uh, kind of positive and voice too. Uh, and that voice has a very distinct those, voice. Those inflections. So when you hear him say, uh, you know, uh, you know, give me Genesis, uh, you know, you, you, you're, uh, uh, you're you're thinking, you know, you're thinking that he's uh, talking to Judd Hirsch, and uh, <laughs> instead of William Shatner, and, you, and, you, and you're thinking, uh, you know. You know, saying something like "You want Genesis?" Okie doke, that kind of you know that kind of thing. Yeah, but another thing I liked is that even the title is vague. It doesn't say whether or not they find Spock. Right. He even filmed two or three endings to keep it a secret. You know, I'll tell you something too. Back on that on that Christopher Lloyd thing. Is that it really required? I think it could have worked if the direct, if there was a director, uh, you know, doing the film, like a Sidney Pollack, uh, you know, who talked about doing Robert Mitchum in the actors, and Robert Mitchum has all these acting ticks that he uh, uh, that he that he goes to, and Pollack said he had to do like a a, a hundred takes a scene just to pull a particular emotion out of. Uh, uh, out of uh, out of out of Mitchum, and he finally just would just throw his hands up in the air. I I think that if you had a director who went to Christopher Lloyd and said, "Stop that, stop that, stop that, and that, and that," this isn't Taxi. Stop it, stop it, stop it. No, 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 no. You know, if you had that, you would have gotten a better performance. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I think it required. Somebody- uh, uh, or you could have not cast him in the beginning. Well, right, right, and I, I was assuming that it was it was basically kind of a name marquee, uh, you know, thing, a studio casting that's kind of thrust upon, uh, you know, thrust upon you. But uh, I thought, you know, much better in the film, in a much lesser role, you see John Larroquette, uh, you know, showing up as his associate. And I think John Larroquette, of course, he didn't have the, uh, you know, the the reputation going into the film as a TV star like Lloyd did. Yeah. Uh, His biggest role before that was probably smoking a joint and get stoned off his gill and doing the narration of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. People don't realize but that, moving that, on, that, that he. Uh, that he 
Yeah. Yeah. Here's a stupid story. Okay, this movie was one of the biggest flops of '84, but it had one of the biggest soundtracks. But the problem was the soundtrack and any song from the soundtrack didn't come out till three weeks after the movie came out. And do you think they would try to reissue the film and try to push the film based on the soundtrack? No, they didn't. No. Not worth it. Not worth it. Uh, Well, yeah, it's not worth it unless the film is, well, it's Streets of Fire. Then it's worth it. Yeah. 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 and, and as much as uh, you know, as much as I like Michael Pere, I think the film was was uh, you know just eminently uh, uh, forgettable, except for the soundtrack. I think it's better. Uh, See, I uh, so it, disagree with that. Off. I so disagree yeah. with that. I, I was in New York. I saw uh, this. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Well, okay. okay. The punchline is is that the first week. VHS sales on this, guys, were over 100,000 units. Yeah. Wow. And so uh, Walter Hill took it, those, those units, and copied it off and wrote, fuck you on it, and sent it to the head of Universal. <laughs> that would be Walter Hill. That would yeah. be Walter yeah. Hill. Uh, now, now, I, you know. just to go back to what I was saying about this, I saw this in New York, okay, at uh-huh. a uh, um, New York theater. It was a matinee. There were only 20 people out, out there, and and it did not get a good critical reception, but I loved it. I loved everything about it. And, and uh, see, where I think you're wrong, or at least where I would argue with you, is that you take a look at the actors and what they did and – and how they, they, you know, like Rick Moranis, we cast him, and we were just talking about Christopher Lloyd, you know, uh, doing all those affectations. Here, Moranis, you know, takes it and does something completely different, and you actually buy him as Billy Fish. And then, then I think yeah. the best thing about the whole movie is Amy Madigan, who I just think is friggin' awesome. And then let's not right. forget, in a very small role, we have Bill Paxton, and we're not even talking about Willem Dafoe. We're not talking about the Blasters. <laughs> we're not talking about yeah. all that wonderful background music of Ry Cooter. I just freaking love this film and loved it. And the thing is, I try to get people to go see it. And they look at me like it got terrible reviews. Why do I want to see that? And then it hit VHS, and it was like exactly what you said. It's a big fuck you. I was right all along. Yeah. That's the way Dude, I feel about hey. this movie. June eighth is probably the one of the most amazing weekends in there. There are two hits that became classics, and the third one, which I think is the best film that came out on June eighth, which is probably the best film of the directors, but it was their biggest flop. The first one that came out on June eighth is Ghostbusters. Don't need to say much about that. People yeah. love it. It's a decent movie. Yeah, and the yeah, second I, one is the third film that caused the rise of the PG-13, which is the better film of the franchise, 
screw you, Carl. You're wrong. It's my Fuck show. Fuck you, Stephen. My last show for 500. Uh, the new batch is better. Gremlins. New batch is better. I'm sorry. You're wrong. No, it's not. <laughs> but Gremlins, here's the third huh? film, and it is the follow-up to Airplane by Abraham Zucker and Zucker, and I oh. think it's their best film. And that would be Top Secret. I'm I'm hard pressed to go against any film that has uh that has Peter Cushing uh among its uh among its cast. Yes, I, I actually think it's uh it's uh I actually think it is their best uh their most accomplished uh sight gag uh you know, sight gag work. The whole the Omar Sharif uh you know bit with the uh, you know, uh, as the uh, the ultimate of secret agents uh, in disguise uh, is uh, hilarious. Peter yeah. Cushing as the uh, the librarian with the enlarged eye. <laughs> and what's funny is well, they were. Well, you know, you know why talk- this didn't work for many people. And I was thinking about this as we were getting together. People forget Ernie Kovacs. They are just channeling Ernie Kovacs all throughout this film. All the psychics, as more, everything. Yeah, as more satire than uh, uh, than uh, you know than straight straight out psychic. Yeah, I can uh, uh, you know I can see that uh, a little bit. I think it's even it's a little bigger than than Ernie Kovacs, but I can see that kind of uh, that kind of satire that you're talking about. And plus, uh, well, well, the, the, the one that all that 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 was a direct steal from Kovacs is the train station. Yeah. That's a direct steal from Kovacs. Yeah, and plus, I love the fact that they're like, okay, we're going to do this film in Swedish. What are we going to do? Let's have them all talk it back. Let's have them talk the lines backwards. We'll do it in Swedish. And Cushing had the lines memorized backwards in under five minutes. Because <laughs> he's that much, of yeah. a, uh, that much of a pro. Uh, did you think of any of... The, um, uh, the any of the, uh, the the fact that Val Kilmer stars in it that kind of uh, uh, you know prevented it from being you know considered as uh, an Abram Zucker best. Uh, and the fact that it's closer to Joe Dawarski than it is to uh, Ernie Kovacs too. I mean, there's so many. Very surreal gags in that movie. Skeet shooting, uh, the anal intruder. <laughs> There's just so many surreal gags in that movie. Well, the skeet, again, yeah. uh, it's those gags to me scream Ernie Kovacs. Maybe not the anal intruder. Okay, maybe not that one. And just cow and boots, that is a Joe Dworsky image, isn't it, Carl? Yes, it is, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And how many other movies are you going to have as a joke? Some guy getting raped by a bull and liking it. (laughs) (laughs) And and come on, Omar Sharif. I mean, goodness gracious. And the the Nazi getting thrown over the edge of the building, and then when he falls, you're expecting something, then he just shatters like a glass face. (laughs) Well, I I, I just wonder if... What the hell? (laughs) <laughs> I just wonder. 
I just wonder if this movie wouldn't be more received, well received, if it had a a more likable star than Val Kilmer, uh, you know, doing uh, you know doing it. I mean, we all talk about you know, everybody highly regards Airplane and Airplane Two in large part not just because of the comedy, but because of the stars Robert Hayes and and Julie Haggerty uh, were very appealing stars at the time and. I just wonder because there's 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 no there's a lot of love hate with uh, with Bill Kilmer um, as far as uh, you know the the leading man. You love him uh, you know, as a human being, he's a fucking douchebag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I'm just wondering if that hurts. Uh, it's just, to me, uh, you know, top secret is is by rights the best uh, you know the best of the sight gag films. And uh, but I just wonder. I look around and I see lots of people ignoring that or forgetting it or not even regarding it. I'm wondering if it's to do with the how. Uh, you know, to be honest with you, he's a very polarizing figure. Yeah, and plus, would well, you want anyway. to come? Or would you put out a movie against Ghostbusters and Gremlins? Uh, uh, no, I wouldn't have them uh, going at each other on the same weekend. Yeah. No, I, I I would I would try to you know make one one weekend one the next juggle and them around. The next, and the next weekend, the twenty second is weird because it is the art film weekend. It's the Karate Kid, which everyone loves. Pat Morita kicks butt. But the art films that come out that weekend are Under the Volcano by John Huston and The Pope of Greenwich Village. Which very uh, superbly done, uh, in a film, and uh, boy, we talk about underrated actors of the time. Mickey Rourke should be at the top of the list. Oh, absolutely! Uh, here's the entire yeah. cast. I'm just talking about the guys that we love on this show. Uh, Eric Roberts, check. Mickey Rourke, check. Kenneth McMillan, check. Tony Musante, check. M. Emmett Walsh, check. Burt Rang, check. Jack Kehoe, check. Frank Vincent, check. Jesus. Well, I think if you, yeah. I think if it could have been had, you would have gotten Jesus for the, uh, you know, for the, uh, uh, for the film. But uh, you, you're definitely I mean, talking just, about. Wow. You're talking about a who's who of, uh, of. Of character, character stars, uh, yeah. you know, of the uh, the picture. Eric Roberts got it, it is a it, it is a crime that his career stardom did not uh, last as long as or that it that it only lasted as long as it did. Uh, I thought this was a guy that was going to be uh, you know a leading man uh, of the De Niro you know type Pacino type for five decades. And he had the popularity in the uh, uh, in the 80s with Star 80 and with uh, Pope of Greenwich Village and uh, uh, and and other films. But you had you really you know thought this was a guy that was going to be one of the Hollywood icons, and it just never uh, never happened. I mean, Geraldine Page in the Pope of Greenwich Village. Yeah. Talk about acting royalty in uh, yeah. you know, in that. Daryl Hannah, you know. 
this is a film that Stuart Rosenberg, who had done uh, a lot of uh, just a Hollywood vet from The Drowning Pool and other uh, and other films, really and, has. And one of our favorites, which is uh, um, oh, now I can't think of it. The one with uh, Matt Allen, Bruce Stern about the bus. That's oh, Rosenberg. You're, you're talking about laughing policemen. Yeah, that's yeah. Rosenberg, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I believe so. I, I believe so. I was thinking that or that was. Uh, yeah, I think that was Stuart Rosenberg. As a matter of, uh, yeah, I'm uh, pretty sure it was. Fact. Yeah. Hey, Carl. What? Rhinestone. Fuck oh. you. Fuck you. Go <laughs> <So> on. <laughs> Why do you want to talk about Rhinestone when the next movie is one of his, one of our guests? Favorite films. How dare yeah, you waste our party? Time. This was really the movie that really was Tom Hanks' first hit, and it's just compared to Police Academy, it's a sweet film. As raunchy as it is, it's really a sweet film. Yeah, uh, I agree. It really is compared to the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, really, instead of, uh, most films would have the Tom Hanks character screw around and get away with it, you know, the fantasy. But in this one, he stays loyal. Yeah. Yep. Um, One of his more interesting characterizations, too, so. uh, And it has one of the best uh, movie gags ever when that bus uh, bursts through the movie theater and you're like, wow, man. Great 3D. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. It's just good. Next is a movie that, well, it's Hal Needham's last big, big movie, and that's Cannonball Run 2. God, I wish this. Was uh, eh. I have to, I have to admit that I got after watching uh, Smoking the Bandit, uh, the first one, and then uh, sitting through Smoking the Bandit two, and watching the first Cannonball Run, which I which I thought was very uh, amusing in a lowbrow, uh, in a, a way, and certainly the cast is uh, is is, is having a great time. You get to see Dean Martin and Sammy Davis in uh, support. You got Roger Moore, uh, you know, co-starring with Burt Reynolds. I got really burned out, kind of tired with the, uh, with the whole madcap road race comedy, uh, you know, formula. I would recommend you from that period. It would be Hooper. I agree. Yes. If I'm talking how that that is, that's the quintessential Hal Needham, uh, you know, film right there. End of story. You know, that's mm-hmm. in fact that's a semi-autobiographical. They would release the TV cut of Hooper, which at the end of it, the credits are like five minutes longer. And what it says is that after the regular credits, it says, "All of my brother's stuntmen who died making movies." That. Yeah. Well, that's actually kind of hard to you know hard to watch. It, it, you know, it's 
it's just kind of a, a sad reminder about uh, about the art of movie stunt making and um, uh, and so forth. And it's it's kind of sobering a, a little bit. But then that's that's how I meet him. You know, uh, you watch Cooper and you realize this isn't just straight comedy. This is, uh, you know, this is. You know, this, this, is, this is drama. This is action, yeah. real life. Uh, and, and I think it's one of Burt Reynolds' more understated performances as well. And here is a movie that ha- that you really want to put in. How to Destroy a Franchise in One Movie 101, and that is Conan the Destroyer. Why take an R-rated brutal franchise and make it a PG-13? Uh, to they wanted to, to get more people in. That's why. And they yeah, well, I think it's to appeal to a more mass audience. Uh, you, you, uh, you you tend to uh, you really restrict your, uh, yourselves when you're going with uh, uh, with uh, you know R-rated you know something that's gory or more profane. You're going to go. They wanted to capture more of the teen audience uh, and the preteen yeah. audience, in a sense, with uh, going with PG. And uh, I don't know if it works. Uh, to me, Conan the Barbarian has more uh, uh, more of a dark guts to it, uh, you know, than uh, than the Destroyer. Yeah, that's so what I mean. Conan the Barbarian's good. This is there's only one thing that works in Conan the Destroyer, and that's Grace Jones. No, there How are two things. Man, Grace Jones from? and Mako. Yeah. Always Mako. Never, never forget him. Yeah. Okay, had, well, Lion is Louis Gabble to Grace Jones. How do you get a man where you come from? We grab him and throw him to the ground. And then what do you do? We rape him. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, I'm watching Grace that, Jones and I'm just going to say, I'm going to Grace Jones. I'm going to say, okay, rape me. It's okay. Yeah. I'm okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you something. something is, I, uh, I saw, oh, hold on. Steve. On Facebook, I saw this this photo uh, just today, as a matter of fact. Uh, somebody posted on Facebook of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger with Wilt Chamberlain, and it was it was during a you know a, a, I don't know a publicity shoot for you know for for something else, but it was Wilt Chamberlain, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the middle, and Andre the Giant on the uh, on the right, and. You just realize just how short Arnold Schwarzenegger really is. The guy is not even not even six feet, and I'm wondering all the scenes that he had to do with Will Chamberlain in in, uh, uh, in Conan the Destroyer. Was he standing on like three boxes or something? Uh, yeah, you know, I think or, so. Or, 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 Will or Chamberlain something. says he was in his autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh my, oh my goodness! But I, I have fun with Conan the Destroyer. Uh, it's just silly, silly pulp fun. Yeah. Speaking of silly pulp yeah. fun, we can skip over real quick. The Last Starfighter is a cute, sweet little movie where Dan O'Hurley is playing the same character from uh, the Music. No, uh, Robert Preston is playing the same character from the Music Man, and by God, it works still. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the Last Starfighter. Well, I think. Such a lovely little film. I've yeah. never heard of Music Man and Last Starfighter being referred to in the same sentence, but okay. Uh, they, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, really, they, they have the same star. 
Yeah, you know, it is a charming. Yeah, it's a charming film. It, it, it really does. Uh, that, you know, that uh, that year wasn't it also the same year that Enemy Mine came out? Uh, I, you know, yeah. When, uh, I think so. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah, and so it, it it was that that whole. It, it it is like you say. I think I think you used the best word for it. It's a char, charming science, uh, you know, science fiction. And I think that uh, um, that uh, was it Lance Guest that uh, that plays the uh, the last yeah. uh, the yeah. last Starfighter mm-hmm. has has a real charm to you know to him. A nice guy. It's kind of well, a Richard Thomas kind of like nice guy charm, huh? Well, the director is Nick Castle. Nick Castle's yeah. always had that thing of making sweet, charming films, you know. Right, right. Yeah. And it makes it kind of, uh, you know, kind of work. There's kind of a uh, a fatherly relationship between the guest, uh, you know, character and Robert Preston's, uh, uh, you know, alien, uh, just alien colonel or alien general, yeah. uh, and, and and so forth. And it kind of works. Who else but Dan O'Hurley he could play the villain? Uh, you know, yeah. that's uh, he, he had a little bit of a run of success with uh, playing the uh, the villain with Halloween Three just the uh, yeah. you know, the year before. So I could, you know, I definitely see it. I know I had a grand time with the Last Starfighter. Okay, moving on, Carl. How many Jim Henson yeah. films open up with a rape joke within the first <laughs> three minutes? Uh. Muppets take Manhattan, basically. Bingo! <laughs> yeah. What it is is there uh, by a way, just very briefly, very briefly, all of a sudden, uh, very briefly, very briefly, very briefly. Let me jump in. Let me jump in. Okay. Very briefly. I had a friend of mine whose girlfriend was an extra on this show. I had a chance to see that little bit of that shoot, and that was in Central Park. So I was actually saw a little bit of this while I was being shot. Okay, that's it for me. Go ahead, Stephen. I'm sorry to interrupt. I forget why they were at the color, but all I know is that this beautiful woman stands up and one, an animal starts chasing her off and grabs her and carries her off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is really, this is the second best of the early Muppet films. I'm not a fan of the Muppets' Great Caper, but this one is just fun. But then it yeah. has uh, yeah. Gregory Hines, uh James Coco. And I would probably put Elliot Gould. I would probably put it. Manelli, Joan Rivers. Pro- that's the thing about the Muppet films is that you're really watching it as much for the cast, uh, the guest cast that they uh, uh, that they uh, that they get, you know, to uh, you know to do this, um, as much as you do for the characters them- themselves. I. I happen to put this third in the, uh, uh, you know, in the uh, Muppets list. The Muppet movie being uh, uh, being the first and best, and I'm a really huge fan of the uh, Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, but this one here, you know, I is, said the early films, right? and that's just counting yeah. uh, uh, yeah. Muppet movie, Great Muppet Caper, and uh, sure. Muppets Take Manhattan. Sure. The adult. Okay, film. and just just so I can jump in here. Screw both of you, yeah. Muppets from Space rules. There I said you go. early films, man. <laughs> Wait a minute. I, well, I know, but still. Treasure Island. 
Where's the love for Muppet <laughs> Treasure Island with Tim with Tim Curry as uh, yeah, as the Captain Hook character? Come yeah, on. they did pretty good once they got into the Disney era. <laughs> there's the uh, early no, era I, I, and the Disney era. Yes. And then there's uh, Muppets but, uh, no, in I Space, to... which doesn't fit anywhere, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, <laughs> no, no, I have to agree with you. It's uh, much better than the uh, than uh, the Great Muppet Caper, which I I think was a step down for the uh, uh, for all involved, really. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And here's yeah. a question for you guys: Is Best Defense the worst Dudley Moore movie of the '80s, or the worst Eddie Murphy movie of the '80s? Both. Heck, it's the worst Tom Noonan movie of the '80s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Oh, that's this sweet. next movie yeah. is great because we have Bud Court fucking Virginia Madsen. Okay, that's all you need to know. Watch Electric Dreams. Bud Court fucks Virginia Madsen as a computer. <laughs> and Bud Court's a computer. Uh, yeah. I, lo- I, I love I'd this movie. I do. It's it's to me. I love the bastard stepchildren, and this is one of them. And nobody else seemed to like this movie until I started talking to Stephen about it. But I love this film, and I'm a huge Bud Court fan. So there you go. Yeah. Well, I'm a huge Bud Court fan, and I, 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 I have a hard time, uh, you know, getting past anything beyond Harold and Maude. Uh, it, 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 it's just like the Bud Court film. But I like this one too. Uh, it's it's kind of charming in its own twisted way. And it, uh, it and it and it works. I like the chemistry between Virginia Madsen and Bud Court. Uh, uh, it, it just it, it works for me. I like it too. I'm with you guys. And you know what's funny? Do you remember how many people got pissed off at us, Carl, when we said that uh, her is just a bastard rip off of Electric Dreams? How many people got mad? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Oh, and, and you know what? I'm okay with that. You said to me, and I, and I thought about it for a second. You know what? You're right. I'm okay with that. Doesn't and here's me. a film that scarred all of us kids in the 80s, and that's the never-ending story. Because we're sitting there going, he's going to pull the horse out of that swamp. He's going to pull that horse out of the swamp. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> it's up there with bright eyes and scarring down. ability. <laughs> oh come on! I, who who wasn't like being programmed to kill something after hearing Lamal every hour of every day? Uh, you know, people, <laughs> I swear that's a great okay. brainwashing song. If they want to hire, if they want to train you as hired assassins to kill, you know, to kill somebody. <laughs> <There's a song. laughs> I like and that. We can do that. That's a good clip. That's the man. I love Canada reading American of, Splendor uh, by Harvey Picar, but after his speech that was translated into the movie of American Splendor about revenge of the nerds, he is a god among men. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're nerds like me. Uh, no, they're fucking not. They're 
rich motherfuckers who are going to graduate the fucking school and then become the bosses of everyone they pick on and make their lives living fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the best oh. thing is, with Paul Giamatti saying that, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to relive the 1980, relive 1984. Now that I've talked to you guys, uh, you know about it. It's yeah. and that's next, a great time for film. Yeah, and next is the movie with some of the best live musical sequences ever, and one of the first times I went. My, who is this Clarence Williams the third chap? He is a very good actress, actor, mm-hmm. and that is Purple Rain. Jesus was, is the movie good? Oh, it is. You start and you stop with the visuals in that uh, uh, in that film. They're so, to me, they're so simpatico with the type of musician that Prince was. That uh, you know that it just they had to go hand in you know hand in hand. I think that's a love letter to if you could say this, it's a love letter to Prince and a love letter to uh, uh, the Minneapolis thing where he came from. Yes, yes. And uh, I'll watch anything that has the ever just the ever just gorgeous Apollonia. Uh, that is, you, you know, it, it, you know, there's there's so much to love with that uh, uh, with that film, and uh, it really it really stands the test of time, as far as I'm concerned. I I'm not as huge on the film as you guys are, but I will say this: there are two reasons, and one, yeah, there were some of us, uh, Stephen, that knew who Clarence Williams the third was because we watched The Mod Squad. When yeah. we were kids, so a little bit before your time. But the person who steals this movie along with Clarence is Morris Day. I know And this I am the Jerome to Carl movie. Morris Day. Hold on, hold on, Stephen. I know it's Prince's movie. And I know he's really no, good, he but I'm sorry. Me. Morris Day wipes wipes him on the floor as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I Morris know. Day That's why I said I am the Jerome to your Morris Day. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, there aren't too many people that there aren't too many people that could wipe the floor away from Clarence Williams the third. But uh, you know, I might just have to agree with you regarding uh, uh, regarding Morris Day. Uh, you know what a what a performance. But I'm with you. I'm yeah. with you. I grew up watching Link on the Mod Squad, so uh, I'm kind of biased towards Clarence. Yeah. And We're next, very biased toward To a movie that has one of the best scripts that John Carpenter ever worked on, uncredited, and is just a great little B science fiction movie. And that is the Philadelphia Experiment. Another we were talking about Michael uh, uh, Michael Perret. Uh, right, yeah. Now this one he yeah. was really good in. This is a good little yes. movie. Yes. And yes, uh, John that... Carpenter worked on this uncredited, Carl. I know. I'm well aware of that. Well, you know, it's to me, it's actually, um, it, it's for such a little you know, a film, you know, which was, you know, not on a big, 
on a big budget. Um, <laughs> it is remarkably a picture looking. Uh, I you know I really can't uh, you know can't get past that, and I, I'm just surprised that it didn't it didn't really do the gangbusters um, uh, you know the type of box office that I thought it would do back in 1984. Well, that's Okay, here's a trivia question. Yeah. What was the first film ever released with a PG-13 rating? Oh, gosh, you're going to stump me again. I don't Carl? have a clue. Uh, we, I'll let you say it because we talked about it earlier. John Milius' oh, Red yeah. Dawn. And why do we love it? Is it because of Patrick Swayze? Uh-huh. Mm, yeah, because no. of his interactions. Is it because Seamus House? No. Is it because of Leah Thompson, Charlie Scene? No. Who could it be? Oh, yeah. Could it be Powers Booth? Yes. Ben Johnson? Yes. Harry Dean Stanton? Yes. William Smith? Yes. Ron O'Neill? Or Fuck yeah. Ron fucking O'Neill. O'Neill. Yes. He is the best. He, he is the best performance in this movie is Ron O'Neill. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I go back to Superfly, but uh, yeah. I you know I will say uh, you know, and and gosh, when you've got Ben Johnson, you've got Harry Dean Stanton, it's pretty hard to upstate. It will William Smith, Big Bill Smith, and Powers uh, Booth, you know, yeah. It's I mean, he has one of the best. He better. has the best line in the movie, comrade. What are you going to do when this is over? I'm going to go home. And then what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm going to hug my wife and kids. And then what are you going to do? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what I, you, you got you got scene stealers like that. It's hard to uh, it's hard to upstage them. But Ron O'Neill does do that. Uh, you know, yeah, that's that is just the whole fun. That's as uh, jingoistic, uh, uh, you know, '80s uh, teen film as they come, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And, I'll and tell you, Ronald Neal made the Russian supposedly the bad guy. You made him human. Yeah, yeah. It, made exactly. him human. I love that at the end of the movie, after him and Patrick Swayze have basically killed each other. And what does he do? He doesn't pull a gun out. He pulls out a flask, and they drink together. And he says, I but, wish I could have done this to you in the time of peace. And then both mm-hmm. of them start laughing, and then they die together. Yep. That, that's a little bit of kind of almost like a Butch and Sundance kind of moment there. But uh, uh, but yeah. it, uh, no, it, it works. It works. And here is the two... Uh, okay, I get this one, Stephen. I get this, and no, I'm just no, going to say. Finish. These are the two best okay. cult films of 1984, and the first one Carl's got, and the second one is uh, one of Rich's favorites, which he mentioned earlier. Carl, okay. Go. So, so all I have to say is this: just remember, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> I saw this in the theater. Of course, we're talking about Buckaroo Bonsai across the eighth dimension. Sure. Uh, sure. 
it, this is just an amazing film, and and I understand why people didn't get it because you're dropped into this universe without a parachute, and you got to figure out what the hell's going on. You don't get it, and and and, and the 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 puns, which are double removed puns, are are flying. Hundred percent. You got all these crazy visuals. I, I love it. The one scene where where Ellen Barkin is in the in, in the bar and she's about ready to commit suicide, pointing and she cocks the gun and the band who is Buckaroo Bonsai and the Eighth all hears it and then pulls out uh, machine guns. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and just stuff like that. Or Mr. Weaver. Which yes, and, makes and, the gags four times removed. <laughs> <laughs> and can I just say something? Okay, we were talking earlier about John Lithgow. Yeah. He is gold in this movie. As is Jeff Goldblum. As is Christopher Lloyd. As is everybody in this movie. Yeah. But John Lithgow takes it to 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 a place that nobody could have imagined. Yeah. Hey. What do you think you're doing, monkey boy? <laughs> or my favorite line in the whole movie. Lithium is no longer a valuable on credit. Yeah. <laughs> Can't say enough about this movie. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, go and ahead. Next, this we movie baffles me today why it wasn't a hit, but I just put it on the eight nineteen eighty four was that packed, and that is Dreamscape. That movie is. Yes. That movie has so many ideas that even the movie you can just feel overflowing in your VCR the ideas that they couldn't have used that they put up. Exactly. This is all about the visual with uh, uh, you know with this uh, with this film. It is you seeing so many, so much sumptuous stuff to uh, you know to look at. Uh, with the effects on this, that you almost discard that yes, there's a story, you know, a story going on, and you've got a cast like uh, you know Max von Sydow and uh, and Dennis Quaid, you've got you know Christopher Plummer, you've got uh, you know this a kind of a who's who of some acting uh, greats, Eddie Albert as the uh, uh, as the president, and. This whole—it's almost like a—it's it, it, almost like a you know a trip through someone's distorted mind. Uh, yeah, it, and it's basically. a great, and it's like a perfect B movie pulp novel where everything is set up, but you know some greatness, even better shit's going to come on down the line. No, oh, absolutely. And, well, and, and to me, the only mistake that he did with this movie is killing David Patrick Kelly's character at the end of the movie. Yeah, and and, and he bad. steals it for me. He steals it for me. I love David Patrick Kelly in this movie. But you know, who else is a fan of director Joseph Rubin? Uh, you know, I, I am. The, I am. I'm a. I, I'm a huge. I'm a sure believer. Sleeping with the enemy. Yeah. Uh, the I'm a big stepfather fan. Oh God! I'm yeah. a big stepfather fan, and he and it's this he's this is a guy who is uh, who also is another one of those that deserves to get a great deal of uh, of, of notice 
doesn't really get the, the notice for the amount of quality films he's directed. Uh, but uh, yeah, good Hello? film. Yeah, and the next one is another one you got that we mentioned. This is the second darkest film of the seventies and eighties that Clint Eastwood is in. The darkest would be The Beguiled. But then you have a movie about a cop who's into S&M who buys hookers and beats them up, and it turns out that someone is killing the hookers that he's buying and that he doesn't get a romantic relationship until he meets Genevieve Bajul, whose first act to him was, why don't you treat me like you treat your girls? And this is a kinky little gem called Tightrope. If you go in expecting a normal Clint Eastwood movie or thriller, you're going to be disappointed. But if you go in expecting a kinky, perverse little slasher, you're going to be a happy person. Wouldn't you say, guys? Well, I, I is, is he still with us? He's still with us? Oh, he's You better dropped. check. He's okay, dropped one but, over So I'll go on with this one. I... Uh, yeah, yeah. If you're looking for a really kinky movie, yeah, this would be one to watch if you could fucking see it. It's way yeah, too no, dark. Yeah, no, there's never been a good transfer of it. But right there's, now, until yeah, he comes even, back, I want to see this in the theater. I want to see this in the theater, and I couldn't even see what was on the fucking screen. Yeah, he can't call back in, so we're gonna. Do a second show of this with him on it because we ain't finishing up the rest without him, and we got a lot to go because we're still in the middle of June. We ain't even hit July yet. Well, well, actually, so we'll actually, be, I think we're in September now. Yeah, we're, in September, we're in September, but we'll do back with him. We'll wait until he comes back. Right, I and agree. Thank you for being on, and uh, tomorrow we'll be. This week is going to be two makeup shows. Carl's show on Tuesday on Obscurus Seventieth. Uh, Right. Right. Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do. Uh, well, let's see. What were we gonna do? Uh, I forget now. Uh, tomorrow's gonna be the Limey makeup show, and then Tuesday's seventieth. The and uh, Wednesday is going to be a makeup show on Anatomy of a Murder. And then, Carl, why the hell have you got me tickets to Paris? Are we going to France? On Thursday? Uh, no, we're going to Texas. Oh, Paris, And we're going to see Harry Dean. Yeah. Yep. We're going to see and Paris, Texas. And what do you guys have going on Friday? Uh, Friday is, uh, uh, he is, he's doing the, your favorite, uh, um, TV shows that were sequels. That, that, you know, like from, from, all in a family, you got Maude, and you got the Jeffersons, and that sort of stuff. After Mash? <laughs> uh, after birth, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> and Saturday, me and uh, my man, the punk rocker man himself, Fred Gorey, we're going to be doing the Killing of America U.S. cut. Yeah, and I won't be, I no, I can't deal with that. There's no fucking. You guys can have that one. 
That's yeah, okay. you live. And you, I, no this thanks. is a I film I'm being there. literal. This is a film I'm being uh, literal. Uh, I lived it, yeah. <laughs> nope. And Sorry, no. Sunday will be our 400 show, which we have a very surprise guest. We're keeping it a secret, a.k.a. until everything is set in complete stone. But, yep. yeah, so far, 1904 has been a hell of a year, hasn't it, Carl? Yes, it has. Absolutely. And what was your opinion, again, of uh, uh, Purple Rain? Who stole that movie? Uh, Morris Day and Clarence Williams III. And here we go to end the show. As I am still the Morris Day to his... I'm no, I'm the Jerome to Carl's Morris Day. Here we are with the one and only Morris Day with Jungle Love. See you next week. Good night, everybody. Good night.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.